The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 46 is something like, does morality depend on religion? And we read Plato's dialogue, The Euthyphro. If you look on partiallyexaminedlife.com, you can get a link to the original text and lots of follow-up information over the weeks following the release of this episode. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, this is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Matt Evans in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome, special guest Matt. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. So this is a special, special guest <laughs> in that Matt went to school with us. It was a couple of years. What year did you start? 96, something like that? Yeah, 95 or 96. I can't remember. Okay. So a year or two behind me, but you stuck with it and are now at Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan. It's true. So says your website as of fall. And where were you before? I was at NYU for six years. Wow, that's impressive. Very good. Thank you so much. <laughs> so the people that have posted on our blog, you guys are dumbasses going to a second tier school where there are no jobs available. Look, someone got a job. So <laughs> <laughs> Did somebody actually post that? Yeah, they soon became troll-like and we deleted the thread. Yeah. But Matt is actually a Plato scholar, right? Articles and things on Plato. That's true. I've written some articles on Plato. I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> Why? Well, I was just looking at one called A Partisan's Guide to Socratic Intellectualism, which I thought was yeah. a cool title. That was an experimental paper. It was one of these papers where I didn't really have a, a view. And so I decided that I would instead just wade into a controversy. I don't think it turned out very well, honestly. <laughs> so I'm a little curious about the academic publishing process. I mean, is it you have to do a certain number of articles per year to keep your career going forward and submitting to the same few journals that string you along for a year and only publish a small percent of what they... Is it that nightmarish or is it... Have you found it pleasant? I wouldn't say I found it pleasant. <laughs> it's a lot like that. There's no set number of articles you have to publish every year, but you pretty much have to be working all the time on some project or other. I've been relatively successful getting things placed, and so it, it hasn't been a nightmare for me, but it's been a lot more work than I thought it would be. And you started pretty early with that, right? Did you publish during grad school or? I think, yeah, no, I did. It, it came out the year that I went out on the market, a paper that 
I adapted from my master's thesis on Epicurus. Would that be, can Epicureans be friends? Yeah, can they be friends? <laughs> and can they? The answer is yes. It wasn't part of, it was the deal, I didn't look at that one, but it was in the, part of Epicureanism is, or actually I'm thinking of Stoicism, that don't form attachments, you need to keep your desires at a low level. Well, that sounds like Epicureanism. What? Or is it Epicurus uh, Stoic? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, they were, they were okay. enemies, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Although, as with many enemies, they agreed on a lot of things. Right. Epicureanism is keep your desires low enough, sort of utilitarianism, but you have the responsibility for leading a simple enough life that your happiness can be maximized fairly quickly, right? Yeah, that's, that's an important part of it. It turns out that for a hedonist, Epicurus was pretty disappointing. I mean, he was basically an ascetic. As you say, he wanted to keep his desires very much in check. He made sure that he didn't develop any taste for anything too difficult to get. But the main problem that I saw for Epicurus as a theorist of friendship, which he was, he thought friendship was a fantastic thing. Mm -hmm. In his view, the only thing you have any real reason to pursue is your own pleasure. And I had trouble at first seeing how that sort of view fits with a wholehearted endorsement of friendship. And yet you said he was ultimately okay with it. Yeah, you got to read the paper to find yeah, out why. We'll, we'll, we'll link folks to that. Yeah, right. Now let's go through every one of your other papers listed here. <laughs> so we tried to get Matt on here for our Republic discussion. And because you were not able, you were in the, in the process of moving to Michigan at that point and other things going on. So we created this special little episode to throw this in. Plus, we've also referred to the Euthyphro a number of times in our, the context of our philosophy of religion discussions in the past few episodes. So it seemed only fair that we have some discussion of it. It is rare for us at this point to actually do something of manageable length. <laughs> right? This and is by like us, <laughs> Mark means himself. <laughs> yes. This is, this is a mere 20 pages, which is, you know, our first episode was on the apology. That's uh, not too much longer than that. So we'll see if we have enough to talk about it or whether we have to just ask Matt more about every single other paper he's ever written. Please don't do that, Mark. <laughs> I'm sure there's enough to talk about in the Euthyphro. Before we launch into that, did you have any other words of wisdom about... We've given a good case for why you should quit grad school. <laughs> why I, should we, we stay made, in? We have made no such case. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to be a theme. We have merely stood as exemplars. I see. I know. I, I think, you know, I, I, the trouble is I don't really know that much about what your guys' lives are like. I mean, I lost touch with you, so I don't, I don't really know what's going on with you guys. But uh, I imagine that your lives are, if anything, fuller and uh, more satisfying than mine. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So let me ask you, let me ask you some simple questions to see if that's verifiable. <laughs> are you married or in a long-term relationship? Yes. You have kids? No. You have any pets? No. Do you sleep well? No. All right. Well, in that case, we may be running neck and neck. <laughs> <laughs> well, as much as we might have had good reasons to shun the life and have to live in Montana or whatever it would have been required for me to get an academic job, I'm enjoying this lot. And have gotten rather obsessive about it. So folks looking at the website might see on uh, this episode, a new episode-specific $1 suggested donation button so that you'll have the opportunity to vote with your wallet. It's like a cover charge. <laughs> Actually, if you do that, then it will automatically send you 
an MP3 of the song that's at the end. But yet, you're not buying the song. You're donating to the podcast and getting the song for free. Just to be clear. That way, Mark doesn't have to put it on his taxes. I don't know what that means, officially. <laughs> and thank you to Andrew Bell and Steve uh, DeCressy or something like that for recent giant donations. Enough of that. Enough money. Unless you have a... I guess you don't, you don't have to put out the hat during your University of Michigan lectures. That's an advantage, Matt. True. Though I know it was often said that if you made college kids pay at the door on the way into every lecture, it would be a very different experience. They already do that. It's called the University of Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to University of Michigan undergrad, and it was abominably overpriced. Well, for what it was, it was not. But it, compared to any other expense that you would have in your life, it's a pricey thing. It's not news to anybody. And yet, do you get the feeling, Matt, that your students are taking maximum advantage of their parents' investment? Some of them are, definitely. I thought it was basically the same at Texas. There okay. were a lot of people who weren't taking it seriously, and it seemed as though they were wasting their money. But, um, you know, there's a pretty dedicated core of kids who are putting a lot into it. And I think, you know, the students here are generally very good. And have you had to go outside of your ancient philosophy field in your teaching gigs? Yeah, actually, as it turns out, this is my first semester here, and I'm not teaching any ancient philosophy classes. Oh. I'm doing a grad-level class on philosophy of mind. And I'm doing a honors level intro to philosophy class for freshmen. Oh, see, that's heartening. The honors freshmen. That's a fun group. Those are some very, very smart kids <laughs> and they know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, things never change. Yeah. There was an honors, I guess there still is an honors program at Texas, right? The Plan 2 program? Right. Those were highly sought after TA positions. I yeah. remember Seth and I got to TA the uh, honors logic in our last year there together. So it was, it was something that they didn't want to be doing because it was logic, but yet it was the kids who were generally showing up. I TA'd for uh, TK Sung's Plan 2 <laughs> class. Yes, indeed. And that was probably the best source of anecdotes from my entire experience at UT. Oh, my God. Let's just change this, this episode <laughs> and tell stories about, about our experiences at Texas. So Dylan can be excluded. Sorry, Dylan. No, I'm sure Dylan has, no, Dylan has no stories, problem. too, I'm sure. They tell enough, Wes and Dylan tell enough damn St. John stories, I think. that we can... I don't tell any St. John stories. Wes tells St. John stories. It's a completely different experience, I think, being a student there versus being on the faculty. All right. I got to say at least one thing about Siung. He used to shuffle around the halls of the philosophy building wearing flip-flops and one of those down vests, even in like summer, I guess because it was so cold in the building. But he would oftentimes have tissue paper sticking out of his nostrils. For what reason? I have no idea. Poor man had a cold. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but he was an absolute delight to take a seminar with. Because the whole classroom experience was like nothing in any other class. He would circle around the table while we were having conversations and then sneak up on you when you weren't ready for it. And he would like slap you on the back of the head or on the shoulder really hard. And his favorite phrase, he used to go, oh, oh, so oh, very smart. Yes. <laughs> And it's not racist because you're actually quoting a real guy. This is, is exactly what he would say. He would go, oh, yes. And then he would say, it was always something like this, like, oh, apprehension can be taken two ways. 
and he would get all excited and animated. I'm amusing myself telling the story. I realize I'm not amusing anybody else, but uh, <laughs> that guy sticks out of my mind as quite a character. Uh, all right. Maybe to the Euthyphro. We are very happy to have, uh, well, Dylan just taught Greek too, right? To undergrads. The, well, yeah. Last time I taught Greek was probably seven I, years ago. Well, I'm just trying not to single Matt out as the sole. I am expert. certain, without a doubt, that Matt knows more Greek than I do. Sometimes when we've read these Plato dialogues in the past, we have harkened back to our grad school seminar days where there would just be two guys that were like the serious ancient philosophy guys and would spend the entire time bickering about the meanings of some particular Greek word. So whereas we have in the past just dismissed that as a nonsensical, valueless part of the discussion... Since we have two of you, maybe we can give a, a demonstra demonstration. Uh, yeah, I would prefer not. <laughs> okay. Uh, but that's because, I mean, it's not that I think it's utterly valueless, but I don't think it's where most of the interesting things happen. Maybe if it turns out that some of the really interesting things turn on that, then we could you know, get into it. But I'm not uh, looking forward to that. <laughs> All right. You want to start us somewhere, Matt? What's a, the first interesting point? I just recently finished a paper where I was basically spilling a lot of ink about just a very small section of this dialogue, which, by the way, I believe is the greatest single piece of philosophy ever written. Okay. Wow. You, well, with that lead in, you have to uh, <laughs> give us the line numbers and uh, set the stage for us. This would be 10A to 11B. What we're interested in in this dialogue is what piety is, where piety is understood as that single feature in virtue of which all pious actions are pious. It's the thing that makes pious actions pious. Right. It's brought up in the context, right, of Euthyphro meeting Socrates, and he's about to go and prosecute his father, Euthyphro is, which a lot of people in their society would think is in itself impious. But he thought he had a good reason because his father had let someone die. But it turns out the person who he let die was a murderer, was somebody who had just killed a slave, right? That's right. Euthyphro is a shocking figure. At least he should be shocking to us. This is a guy who is willing to prosecute his own father for murder on the grounds that his father didn't adequately treat a guy who was in his employ, got drunk and killed someone else. What Socrates points out is that, look, if you're confident enough in your own sense of what's pious and impious to the point where you're ready to prosecute your own father for impiety in a case like this, then you'd better well know what piety is. You'd better be able to explain what it is about the act of prosecuting your father that makes it pious and the act that your father committed that made it impious or unjust or whatever. Socrates is being charged with impiety, and he's actually on his way to hear the indictment when he runs into Euthyphro. Aren't they standing in line, actually, outside of the hall? They're at the porch of the king. Yeah, you're right. They're right there. He's being charged with impiety. And when he hears Euthyphro's story and he imagines that, well, here's a guy who must know what impiety is. I'll take this opportunity to get the right account from him so that when I'm brought before the jury and charged with impiety, I'll be able to explain why, in fact, I'm not impious. And Euthyphro is characterized as a religious, or at least follows the practices of honoring the gods. But in this specific case, he refers to how Zeus killed Kronos and Kronos killed his father, and that this is a justification for what he's doing in the case of his own father. Yes. He's pretty clearly taking the traditional stories about the gods and using them as a justification for what he himself is doing. Socrates asks him about that, and it starts going down the road of how you interpret the, the stories of them actually being true. 
Socrates seems to just want to put that off to the side for a while. <laughs> well, I think he registers some fairly serious disagreement with Euthyphro on this point. This is at 6A and B. Right around here, there's a line where in, in my translation, which is the groove, Socrates says, Indeed, Euthyphro, this is the reason why I am a defendant in the case, because I find it hard to accept things like that being said about the gods. And it's likely to be the reason why I shall be told I do wrong. So I think in the background here is Socrates' willingness to admit that he disbelieves these grotesque stories about the gods. Not just that he wants to set them aside, but that he actually finds them false and perniciously so. When you're reading this, do you have Socrates kind of smirking the whole time? Because you just said earlier, he thinks Euthyphro, since Euthyphro claims to know so much about piety, you know, might be able to help him out. But just clearly, that's obvious irony to me. Socrates thinks no such thing. He's just doing his usual, here's another windbag that I'm going to deflate. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the literature about what Socratic irony amounts to. There's no doubt that he's got a lot of masks on all the time. But thinking of him as a just smirking is maybe not quite right, although I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I'm not going to make a point of this, but I, but I do think that he's like a lot of people who are puzzled, genuinely puzzled about certain questions. And even though they know that the people they're talking to are in really no better position to answer these questions than they are, they really value the opportunity to work through the questions anyway. And working through the question works only if there is an assumption that the person you're talking to knows what they're talking about. I think that's a right on generous way to take it that Socrates, when he goes in these conversations, it may be at a certain point in the conversation where he may be not quite making a fool out of somebody or trying to. But most of the time, I think that he's genuinely engaging with them, even if he knows that they are not up to the task. He's not prejudging the situation exactly. It's a separate question asking, well, you know, do you think Euthyphro is going to be able to handle this conversation very far? And he's not going at it with the point of trying to make a fool out of him. It's probable that there is some element of shaming that's going on, especially in this dialogue. The theme of shame actually comes up pretty prominently in the second half of the work. And mm -hmm. it's clear from Socrates' perspective that Euthyphro should be ashamed of himself for doing what he's doing without having an adequate grasp of the relevant concepts. There are some readings of this work which cast Socrates as someone who is really trying to prevent Euthyphro from going through with this. In which case, it's not just a matter of getting into a conversation and trying to get at the truth, but there's also this matter of getting this kid to stop doing this terrible thing. So that's part of the interpretation of sort of how it ends, where Euthyphro slips out and just says, yeah, I don't have time for any more of this. Yeah. Socrates, but please, please. That it's not that he's really trying to get insight for his own trial, but it's trying to stop this thing from actually happening. Right. On some interpretations, that's what's going on, yeah. Which certainly, when it got to the point you raised about, you know, when he brings in the gods cutting up each other, you know, their own parents and stuff, that, that seemed to be a point where if Socrates is, is going to throttle him at some point, that would be the point. Right. Yes, yeah, that right. You're uttering impiety at me right now. I know it's in the culture, but that's just obvious horseshit, and you should know that. The way Socrates deals with this, just as Matt said, he admits, at least implicitly, that he doesn't take these things to be true at face value. And then he goes on to say, around 6C, do you hold that there really is a war among the gods against one another and, and terrible enmities and battles and many other such things as they are spoken of by the poets? And Euthyphro says, yes, of course, I believe that. And Socrates then just backs out. He says, I shouldn't wonder, but you'll explain these to me some other time. And then he wants to change the subject. 
So he basically doesn't want to have the discussion about whether or not you believe those stories. Matt might know better than me about whether or not this particular passage would fall into the discussions about Socrates' point of view about poetry in general, you know, that looms large in the Republic. What I'm trying to make sense of the set of remarks that, you know, 6A to C, I do refer to that material from the Republic, although that's kind of a faux pas, just because most people think that the Republic was written much later than the Euthyphro and the mm-hmm. uh, Socrates who speaks in the Republic really isn't the same Socrates who speaks in the Euthyphro. These are sort of issues that I don't particularly have a view about, but um, it's considered to be risky anyway to draw connections that tightly. I thought it was kind of cheeky for Euthyphro to compare himself to the gods that way. Yeah. Well, if it's good enough for Zeus, it's good enough for me. On the other hand, if you are looking for some kind of vindication for the view that sometimes it's appropriate to visit punishment upon your parents, this story might give you some evidence that it is, if you think that stories about the gods are evidence of what's permissible. Yeah. So for the listeners, this section they're referring to is where it says something to the effect of, Everyone acknowledges that Zeus is the best and most just of the gods, but at the same time acknowledge that he put his father in bonds because he wickedly devoured his children, who in turn had mutilated his father for similar reasons, but they're incensed against me because I proceed against my father when he has done wrong. So maybe there's some unwritten or unspoken social norm here that you don't prosecute or you don't move against your parents, even if they have done wrong. And Euthyphro is somehow going against that and invoking this as justification for murder is murder is murder, regardless. At one point, he says something about the blood What is it? The blood? It's probably the pollution or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pollution. The miasma. Yes. Yeah, for the pollution turns out to be equal if you knowingly associate with such a man to do not purify yourself as well as him by proceeding against him in a lawsuit. Right. He's acting in a certain sense of his own conscience, right? Like, I can't in good conscience not, like, I wouldn't be able to live with myself and my father if I didn't bring this case to court. Yes. Now, there is a reading of Euthyphro, according to which he really is a very principled man. And Socrates has really got him wrong. He's someone who sees that the fact that a man is related to you by blood makes no difference to the question whether that man should be prosecuted for a certain act. And if you put it that way, it does sound like an enlightened view. Right. Not to mention the principle that just because someone is an alleged murderer doesn't give you the right to neglectfully treat them. How much police brutality or something could a principle like this have prevented were it prominent in history from way back then to now? Even in current mores, why would you want to be humane to prisoners? If somebody has done something like that or even has been accused, why not have terrorists rotting in Guantanamo Bay forever? Um, <laughs> right. So the fact that he's more, Euthyphro is more enlightened than us in some ways. Maybe. Well, but wouldn't the problem for Socrates be that Euthyphro makes this argument from the standpoint of piety, which ends up not having to do with justice? It's related to the problem that he gets accused of in the Apology, that he's corrupting the youth or he's not believing in the gods, when from his point of view, it would have different fish to fry, that if Euthyphro had come in saying, well, it's a matter of the just, and what his father did was unjust, and allowing injustice to continue is also unjust, or something like that, he would have a reply to it. But I think there's an important difference for Socrates if the question is about piety versus about justice. Right. Well, it does seem to collapse into a question of justice toward the end of the dialogue after the famous part that Matt wanted to talk about in the first place. Okay. I think we're almost up to it. 
unless we have a key point before that that we want to make sure that we hit. It's not that key, but it's a little bit different. I want to register a slight difference from what Dylan said about whether the war among the gods is abandoned as irrelevant after 6C. Uh There is a section of the argument which really does turn on convincing Euthyphro that, that if the gods are at war at all, they're going to be at war over what's just and unjust, what's pious and impious. And so, and this is supposed to cause a problem for Euthyphro's proposed definition of the pious as that which the gods love or the god beloved. That makes sense. What I was thinking of more is the question of the factual nature of the account. At that point, after 60, around 60, it seemed to me that Socrates is abandoning the part of the discussion that there really are battles. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, I agree with that. You're right. He absolutely is leveraging that. Well, Granting that there are battles, that whatever arguments there are amongst the gods, the question of piety is going to be manifest in those kinds of things. You're right. He doesn't any longer register his rejection of the view that the gods are at war. He just says, let's assume they are. Then there's going to be a serious problem with your definition. That problem is never really resolved. I myself think that the argument that Socrates gives against Euthyphro at that point is Fairly unpersuasive, but I don't think it's all that interesting. Right after that argument finishes, there is a moment where Socrates basically says, all right, you know what? Let's just assume that that pious is the God loved in the following sense. It's what all the gods love. And the uh, impious is the God hated in the following sense. It's what all the gods hate. This is around 10A. It's about 9C. Do you guys mind if I just do a quick summary? Please do. So the proposition that Euthyphro puts out there is piety is what is dear to the gods and impiety is that which is not. And Socrates says, yeah, but don't the gods quarrel? Don't they have differing things that are dear to them? And uh, Euthyphro says, yeah, you're right. And so he says, we can't adjudicate between which things that are dear to which gods have priority over other things. So he says, you know what? How about we just agree that piety is about what's unanimously dear to the gods. And if they have differences, that's okay. That's right. Which I'm kind of starting to read into that, some of the considerations that we had in the last conversation on uh, Adam Smith of moving from a consideration of our individual moral reactions to things to the moral reactions of an ideal observer or the reactions of someone divorced from my particular circumstance. So if you're talking about what is near to this particular god, well, Zeus really wants to go down and turn into a bull and make it with that woman. Uh, Hephaestus is not so down with that. So what is it that they have in common? Well, it sort of abstracts from their individual self-interest as gods into just, in general, what is God-beloved. There's some advantages of that formulation over the monotheistic version, right? That mm. if you have even the notion of a Yahweh that is, uh, well, of course, his behavior in the Old Testament is fully as atrocious as many of these things discussed with Zeus in them, but uh, sort of abstracting from God's self-interest, what would God approve? What would the ideal God approve of? If we take seriously the suggestion that Socrates gave at 6B and so on about how he thinks of the gods, I think Mm -hmm. that his own view is that all the gods together really do constitute something like an ideal observer. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Maybe there's a lot that's understood here that's not stated about how the gods differ and what they differ on versus what they would agree on. Euthyphro says there might be something pleasing to Hephaestus, but hateful to Hera. And so you kind of think, okay, well, what would be examples of that? In the same way, if you just think back to the Iliad, there were different heroes that were favored by the different gods. And what Euthyphro says is, look, surely none of the gods would disagree 
that somebody who kills someone wrongfully ought not to pay the penalty. And this is kind of already anticipating that later point about are these things holy because the gods love them or do the gods love them because they're holy? Because he's almost stating a principle here already that stands, you almost want to say is independent and prior to the gods agreeing on it. The thing that's prior is the fact that... Uh, that anyone who kills somebody wrongfully ought to pay whatever penalty there is. He says, none of the gods would disagree with this. Sure, but I mean, I suppose that's logically consistent with the view that it's still the unanimous view of the gods that makes that required, namely the, you know, the punishment of the guilty. It's interesting that the example, so, Seth, the Hephaestus versus Hera thing, I actually have a footnote. I have the Grub translation as well. That it's a story of uh, Hephaestus and his mother Hera mentioned next similarly involves a son punishing his parent. So this example and the Zeus versus Cronus and Cronus versus Uranus all have to do seemingly not with disagreements about matters of aesthetics or value, as Socrates says in 7D, but as somebody did something that somebody else doesn't like. Maybe they even, in the abstract, if they're discussing it, have ideal values or something like that. But yet somebody crosses a line and pisses somebody else off. So there's the conflict. And so what is, I'm sort of thinking of, of this God beloved for a particular God has to do with the particular, not just what the aesthetic and moral sensibilities of that particular God are, but that God's particular conflicts with others, that its particular situation as a being in the world. Whereas when you go to the plural, then maybe you get away from that. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content all available from a single convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.